Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. One thing they teach you when you go to seminary and when you are taking your preaching classes is to always keep in mind your audience. So as I was preparing this message, I was keeping in mind my audience, not anticipating that God would bring us guests of 30 plus students to be with us this morning, but that's exciting. So thank you all for joining us this morning for, for church and for worship. Um, Pastor Scott is out this week, so I have the, the honor and the privilege of getting to, to share God's word with you. And this morning, if you've been coming, you know we are going through the book of Exodus, uh, verse by verse, taking our time as we study this book and how it can apply to our lives today. In recent weeks, we've been diving in deeply to the Ten Commandments. And as we have done this, we have seen really these commandments are broken up into two sections. The first chunk of the commandments really have to deal with our relationship with God. Commands such as, have no other gods before me, don't make any carved images in my name, and so on and so forth. And as we've gotten into this latter half of these commandments, we've seen they really address our relationships with one another. Honor your father and your mother. And in recent weeks, we've looked at commands such as do not murder. If you are here last week, we talked about the command against committing adultery. And as we continue, our, our verse for today is Exodus 20, verse 15, and it says, you must not steal. Again, we see this is a command that has to do with God's people and how they relate to one another. And we've had the privilege the last two weeks as we've looked at do not murder, do not commit adultery, to see Jesus's specific teaching and expansion of our understanding of those two commands. We saw that Jesus taught on the commandment of murder and expanded it from just the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, teaching that even if you have hatred in your heart towards a brother or sister, you've broken the command to not murder. And you continue this with, if you have lusted after another person, you have broken the command to not commit adultery. And while he does not explicitly mention the command of stealing in that teaching, it's safe to say we can take that same thought process, that same mentality that Jesus had, and not just look at do not steal as the letter of the law, but what is the spirit behind this law? What can we glean from looking at this law in that way? So if a heart of hatred is prone to murder, and a heart of lust is prone to adultery, I think it begs the question, 
What kind of heart is prone to stealing? What should we be on guard for in our lives, in our hearts, that may lead us down a path that results in stealing? So on the surface, this command, do not steal, seems very basic. It's very short, four words. Yet that is intentional and by design. This is a command for all of God's people, regardless of status, age, or gender. If you were to look at other moral laws from this time in history, the Code of Hammurabi, for instance, they would be much more detailed in commands of not stealing. And one reason for that is that those laws were really set up to benefit the more prominent in their society, the kings of their society, and to be detrimental to the lower class. So I think it's important that we recognize the intentionality and the simplicity of this verse. If this is a law for all of God's people, no matter your status, your job, whatever classification we as humans like to put on a person, this law crosses all those boundaries. Do not steal. However, if we're not careful, we can let the simplicity of this law cause us to overlook it or to not consider it to the full extent. If we're not careful, we can view this command in a way that strips it from the authority it is to have in our lives. So my hope for this morning is that we will understand what kind of heart is prone to stealing so we can identify it in our own lives. We can understand what kind of heart, what kind of traits in a heart are prone to stealing so we can then identify that in our own lives. And one characteristic of a heart prone to stealing is a heart that values the created more than it values the creator. A heart prone to stealing values the created more than it values the creator. If you would, with me, consider the story of Adam and Eve, which we find in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were living in the garden, an unbroken community with God. And God had given them a task, a responsibility to care for creation, had put that under their dominion. They had a connection with God. They had a God-given calling and the responsibility they were given. And they had a God-given relationship. They had a connection with God, a God-given responsibility, a God-given relationship. I would say those are three things we as people strive for, right? To know we have a higher connection, to know there's purpose in what we are doing, and to have a meaningful relationship. They had all these things. By all metrics of our standard, what more could they need? They had free access and reign to all that is good because they have a good God. And out of God's goodness, he gives them a special command. We see this in verse 17 of chapter 2. He's given them free reign to eat of any tree in the garden, all that are good, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat its fruits, you are sure to die. So in a recap, unbroken connection with God, full access to everything good for them in the garden, 
and responsibilities to care for the garden. So what do they do? If you've grown up in church for any period of time, you know the answer to that question. Instead of living in communion with God and caring for the garden as their task, they choose to take advantage of the opportunity. Instead of caring for this garden, they choose to take advantage of the position God has given them. And we see this play out in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, something we often call the fall, for it is where sin enters into the human narrative. So one day, Eve is confronted by a serpent that is in the garden. And during this confrontation, I want us to see that two significant things occur that would cause Eve and ultimately Adam to value God less and value his creation more. The first thing we see occur is that Eve began to doubt God. In Genesis 3, verse 1, the devil tempts Eve to doubt God by saying, did God really say this? If you really, if you eat from this fruit, were you really, did God really say this? And his deception, he causes Eve to question God's word and ultimately God's goodness. And when we question God's goodness, we begin to wonder, will he really provide for me like he promised that he would? Will he really take care of my needs? Will he really watch over my family like he says he will? Or should I doubt God a little bit? And once Eve began to doubt God, we then see she began to doubt that she truly had enough, that what she was given would be enough for her and for Adam. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we see after this deception, this encounter with the serpent, with the enemy, it says that she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruits looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. As Eve's value of God lessened, her trust in God followed. As her value in God lessened, her trust in God lessened as well. It was now her own wisdom she would rely on, and not God's generosity, not God's goodness, but her own wisdom to reach out and take what she wanted and not trust that God would give her what she needed in that moment. This lack of faith in God's generosity led to a scarcity mindset, believing that there was not enough that she had. She needed to obtain more somehow and to obtain it from her own wisdom, from her own scheming if you would. She doubted God, then doubted she had enough, and then she stole what was not hers. And we have to recognize we are susceptible to this same order of events in our life. We can doubt God, and then it lead to us really doubting his goodness and that he is enough for us. And when we doubt God is enough, we then take efforts into our own hands and are prone to take things, to grab hold of things that are not intended for us and are not 
ours to have, not ours for the taking. We have to be ready to battle a scarcity mindset in our own lives. Because ultimately, this is fed by a lie from the enemy, by a lie from the devil. The devil wants us to believe that God is not as good as he says he is. You know, I truly believe that we see in Scripture how cunning and deceptive the devil is. And I truly believe that sometimes he doesn't want to do all the legwork of making us think God doesn't exist. He just wants us to doubt that God is as good as he truly says he is. Because when we start to doubt God is as good as he says he is, then we really question, will he care for me? Will he provide for me? Will he give me what I need in this life or do I need to take it by my own means? When we have a scarcity mindset, we think there may be a day when God can no longer meet the needs that I have. When we have a scarcity mindset, we struggle to be generous and give because we doubt God's generosity. If I give to this cause, if I tithe, God may not be faithful in fulfilling that need. That comes from a scarcity mindset that it's so easy for us to live in, for us to doubt. Another characteristic of a heart that is prone to stealing is a heart that devalues our fellow man. A heart prone to stealing devalues our fellow man. In Genesis 25 through 27, we see this story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn by a few moments. They were born at the same time, but Esau was the first one born. And he has promised a birthright and a blessing with this. It was common in this culture, in this day and age, for the firstborn son to receive a birthright and a blessing. And Jacob clearly is jealous of Esau and what he has as rightfully his as the firstborn and becomes jealous of this. And together, Jacob and his mother conspire to steal the birthright and the blessing from Esau. And through this theft that Jacob commits, we see him not only devalue his brother, but he also devalues his father. The first instance that we see this, we see Jacob taking advantage of his brother in a moment of need. So one day Esau comes home from a hunting excursion, exhausted and hungry, and asks Jacob to prepare a meal for him. Jacob says, all right, Esau, I got you. I can do that if you give me your birthright. If you give me what is rightfully yours, if you allow me to take this from you, sure, I'll make you some soup. I'll give you a, a meal. I'll meet your need that you have. And after a brief back and forth, we see that Esau relents and surrenders his birthright to Jacob. Genesis 25:33 says, but Jacob said, you must first swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as a firstborn to his brother, Jacob. 
In this moment, we see how Jacob devalued his brother. His brother comes in with a very clear need and a very vulnerable state, is back from a hunting excursion, is hungry, seemingly to an extreme extent. And instead of taking care of his brother, Jacob sees this as an opportunity to take advantage of his brother. And this lack of care, this lack of value for a fellow human being led to him stealing his birthright, stealing what was not his to have. And sadly, this story of Jacob's deception, of Jacob's theft, does not end here. We also see that Jacob would go on to take advantage of his father. Uh, Genesis 27, 1 and 2 show us the, the state that their father Isaac was in at the time, that he had become old and blind as he's gotten older in years. And again, Jacob is presented with a choice, much like the choice he had with his brother Esau. He can either take care of his father or he can choose to take advantage of his father. Jacob chose to dress up as his brother and deceive him so he may steal a blessing that is not his. And in doing so, we see yet another example of how Jacob was prone to steal by devaluing his fellow man, this time his very own father. And I think as we look at this text, how Jacob took advantage of, stole from two people who were in vulnerable situations, it's important for us to recognize that it's often the most vulnerable in our society who are most likely to be stolen from, to be victims of, of theft. Look at the world around us. Those who have, those who are, unable to defend themselves, to fend for themselves in some way or another are often the ones that are most stolen from, most taken from. When we steal, we take advantage of those around us, just as Jacob took advantage of Esau and his father, Isaac. And really, as we've looked at this story of Adam and Eve and now Jacob, we kind of see this dichotomy popping up in both of them that we can choose to take care or we can choose to take advantage. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were told to care for this garden, tend to it. Instead, they took advantage of the position God had put them in and they stole what was not theirs. Jacob had an opportunity to take care of his brother in a moment of need to take care of his father and tend to him, yet he chose to take advantage and saw the opportunity to steal something, again, that was not his and did not belong to him. And I think we all like to think we are good people. You know, we go through the, the common situations of an opportunity to be dishonest or to be honest. We often talk about, oh, if I found like a lost wallet on the ground somewhere. I would definitely not keep that. I would return that. Yeah, I think we were all prone in our lives to slowly adapt a heart of stealing. The more we doubt God, the more we devalue 
the people around us, the more prone we are to inch towards that sin of theft. And sin is something that would take you farther than you ever imagined you would go. That's why we have to guard our hearts, as Scripture says. Say you're an employee working for a company, and you're working an hourly wage. Will you take care or take advantage? Will you fill out your time card honestly, or will you fudge the numbers a little bit to get an extra few dollars here, a few dollars there, and steal from your employers? Maybe you're in this room and you're like me and you've borrowed something from somebody. Maybe you've borrowed some tools for a project at home. Maybe you've borrowed a book from someone. Will you take the care to return that or will you take advantage of that lender's forgetfulness and just continue to, to hold on to it? Thinking it's not that big of a deal. It's just a book. You know, I think it does speak to how much we value the person who lent it to us. Maybe you're an employer in this room. Will you choose to take care or advantage? Will you pay your workers a fair wage? Or will you choose to pay them the bare minimum so you can have more comfort in your own life? When we devalue our fellow humans, it becomes a lot easier for us to take advantage than to take care. And in doing so, we steal what is not ours. And we can even expand this from the interpersonal interactions that we all have throughout the week. Let's look at this on a bigger scale. Let's look at our news today. For example, we see a lot in the news about a war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. One country trying to steal what is not theirs fueled by devaluing another people. These people don't really matter. I'm going to come in and take what I want and not care about who is harmed in the process. Let's get a bit more historical. Go back a few generations, a few decades in our country, bring it a bit closer to home. And as many of you grew up in school, you probably heard about the Jim Crow laws that were instituted in the South, and a plan to steal opportunities from African Americans in this country, to rob them of their chance so that we may have a better chance. Even further back to something like the Indian Removal Act that happens in 1830, many Native Americans were forced from their home so land could be taken, could be stolen by other people who did not value those who they were taking it from. Ever since Adam and Eve, theft in the garden, we have all been plagued with a heart that is bent towards devaluing God and devaluing our fellow man. And as consequences of that, we are prone to take, to desire, to want what is not ours. To doubt God's goodness, that he is enough to view our fellow man as less than we and to by force reach out and take or by deception reach out and take, which is not ours. If you don't think that is true, spend a Sunday morning in the children's area and watch how the kids fight over toys, <laughs> right? There's no, there's no 
generosity. Here, you may play with my toy. It's like, no, it's mine. I want it. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid. Maybe you've heard that expression before. We all have a natural inclination, a natural heart bent towards theft. Because of this sin that we see with Adam and Eve in the garden, because of the sin nature we are all born with, we have to be aware and guard our hearts of that desire because it is there. Luckily, God has a plan to restore all that was stolen. He doesn't leave us in this. He has a plan to restore. And we see this in a few different ways throughout his word, throughout scripture. One way we see this is that God has a very literal and detailed plan to bring restoration between people, between someone who has stolen and the person they have stolen from. If you were to flip over a couple pages in your Bible to Exodus 22, you would see that God lays out in detail how a thief is to seek restoration with a person he has stolen from. And in many situations, that involves either returning what was stolen, returning the full cost of what was stolen, or paying double the cost of what was stolen with the goal of bringing restoration between the thief and the victim. We also see in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus that God lays out detailed plans for restoring a person to God, an individual to God. In Leviticus, he talks about making a guilt offering, offering a ram as a sacrifice so that if you have committed this sin of theft, you may now be made ritualistically right and pure before God. But God does not end with those two. In fact, God has a much larger plan, a much larger rescue story to restore everything that was stolen. And God's ultimate plan is to restore what was stolen in the garden. And not a fruit, but to restore our unbroken communion with himself. Because that is ultimately what was lost, what was taken in the garden, was this unbroken, broken connection with God. And God's plan to restore that was by sending his own son, by sending Christ to come and bring restoration, to send Jesus Christ to come and die and raise again. So I think whoever you are this morning, there's an action step you can take towards intentional restoration, which we see that God clearly values in his scripture. Maybe that intentional restoration that you need to take a step in is because you have stolen something. Maybe you took a physical object or something from someone else and you need to take steps to make restoration with that person, whether it's returning the object you took or reimbursing them for the value of that, whatever it may be. So that's one step, I think, that could be taken after encountering God's word on do not steal. Another step is a more spiritual step, and that is, has your communion with God been restored as Jesus was 
crucified on the cross and in this act of restoration to restore what was stolen, to restore that communion that was broken back in the garden, as you read the narrative of Jesus being crucified, you see that he was crucified between two people. Poetically, it was two thieves, two people who would have stolen something, and they're being crucified with Jesus. And in this story, we see two responses from these two different people. One of these thieves looks at Jesus and says, if you're really God, who you say you are, who they believe you to be, take yourself down off this cross. Prove it to us. The first thief does not believe that Jesus can do what he says he can do. He mocks Jesus and saying, show your power if you are who you say you are. The second thief, on the other hand, on the other side of Jesus, sees him for who he is, recognizes the Messiah, and says, please just remember me as you enter into heaven on this day. And then Jesus responds to him, surely you will be with me in paradise. And if you're here this morning with us and you have not restored that communion that was stolen, you have the same choice, right? You have the same choice to see Jesus and not recognize who he is or to see him and recognize who he is and accept that gift of grace that he has given you that he has come to restore whatever it is that has been stolen. And the main thing he's restoring, the main thing that we see was lost in the Genesis narrative in the fall was this, bro- was this unbroken communion with God. And how cool would it be if you're here today and you realize I've never had that restored. I've never taken that step and really trusted Christ to restore that communion, to save me from the sins that I am guilty of. How cool would it be to do that this morning and then join in communion with a a family of believers? We're fixing to enter into our communion and then a time of response. And I want us to encourage you to respond how you need to in this moment. Maybe there is a relationship with someone you know that needs to be restored. Maybe you have stolen something from someone. Maybe you have devalued someone in a way that has been detrimental to them and you need to take steps to restore that. In this time of response, you can pray. You can ask God to give you strength to do those things. Or maybe you're here, like we said, and you've recognized you've never had your relationship with Christ restored. That relationship, that connection that was stolen in the garden, maybe you've never had that restored. And if that's you, I invite you to respond as well, to seek Christ, to call on him and his grace. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you this morning at some point as well before you leave. Do not steal. We all have a heart bent towards theft, whether it is theft by 
devaluing God and valuing his creation or whether it's caused by devaluing our fellow man. Whether we have physically stolen or not, I think we can all look at our lives and say this time, yeah, I've doubted that God's good enough, that I've lived in a scarcity mindset. Or we can look at situations and say, well, I've devalued a person and I've gained from that the way I treated someone else. So respond this morning how you will now as we're taking communion, later as we sing a song of response. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.